Hello and welcome to the Brooks McDonald podcast. My name is Edward Park and I'm the Deputy Chief Investment Officer. And today I'm joined by Richard Lana, our Head of Research, and Matthew Cady, who is our Investment Strategist. So today we're going to be talking about our asset allocation views coming into uh, 2020 and we'll touch on a broad range of topics. This podcast is available on all of the top podcasting applications. To find it, go to Spotify, for example, and search for Brooks McDonald. So uh, to start off, let's have a chat about the US-China trade war. And obviously, we've had the phase one deal now signed. It was it seemed very bizarre to me that a lot of the rally was priced in over the last month or so, but no one really saw what the text would look like until a few days before. Richard, do you want to uh, start us off with a view on the US-China trade war? Yeah, I think the the important aspect of the build up to the signing of the trade agreement was that, you know, obviously markets don't like uncertainty. And as that became a little bit more certain that there was an agreement being leaked into the market, although the actual detail wasn't leaked. The fact that there was going to be some sort of compromise gave the market a little bit of um, a relief rally. So over the Christmas period, obviously, we've seen markets push to new highs again. I don't think it's um, yet, though, that you know the conclusion to the, the US-China trade war, as it were. And also, I think what's more of a worrying aspect is once the US-China agreement comes to the fore, there is concern that the US does start looking elsewhere at other markets. And one area that could be of concern for us is how they deal with the European situation as well, because there is an imbalance in trade with Europe as well. And it seemed to me that when we were looking at the phase one trade deal, there was this sort of hope that it was going to sit on some part of the scale. I mean, they were kind of the most pessimistic end. It was simply going to be a ceasefire, so tariffs wouldn't carry on going up on the optimistic end, it would be largely a pretty comprehensive deal uh, dealing with some of the comprehensive intellectual property issues, those type of things. Yeah. It wasn't quite that. Yeah, no, I, I think it was, it was a bit middle ground, but there were there were some very important aspects in there. And I think one one area that has been probably overlooked a little bit in certain areas of the market that I've been looking at in some of the commentary I've been reading is that Trump and the US have pulled back from calling the uh, Chinese currency manipulators. And I think that's quite important going forward as well, because it sets the tone for the backdrop for the next stage of negotiations. I think there's been an element of of give and take in this from both sides. It is a bit of a a standstill, isn't it? Because there are still substantial tariffs in place, 25% tariffs on $250 billion of Chinese imports still, and a further 7.5% of uh, 120. So I I think this is definitely a sort of a de-escalation of standstill. So there's no further escalation of tariffs. But I think very mindful that um, you know substantial barriers do still remain in place. I think that the key travel for markets now is to see continued progress over phase two negotiations. Those will start pretty imminently. I think Trump's indicated that those might not conclude until well after the November US presidential elections. But um, I think the markets will be keenly watching how that progresses. I, I think that's the case because bar this really quite optimistic outcome, this, the trade deal we've got obviously with a lot of the tariffs still intact, But in addition to that, we've got this mechanism within the phase one trade deal where more tariffs could be put on by uh, the US if there's this perception that China aren't entirely playing ball. This kind of means this issue stays in investors' minds for 2020. It doesn't fully go away. That said, we are pretty constructive on, on Asian equities. And I think that's been one of our overweight, well, for the last year or so, and actually has begun to serve us quite well since this phase one trade deal has been signed. Absolutely. I think there are two points to make, really. One, we've just seen GDP data this morning out from China. Q4 GDP 
growing year on year at 6%, 2019 growing at 6.1%, broadly in line with consensus. That's still a pretty strong number. And I think many would look at the trade war and wonder what impact it's actually had on China in, in reality. China has still managed to uh, to hold its share of global exports over the past year at around 12%, pretty much uh, unchanged. Also, data back in 2018 now from the OECD estimated that had you had US and China tariffs fully tariff trade up to 25%, you'd only knock around a percentage point off uh, global GDP levels by early 2020. So I think the trade war has really been much more insidious in terms of indirect impacts, a forestalling and delay of intentions of capex and investment spend. And now that there's some clarity about progress and de-escalation, I think you'll see some pickup on that front. Our positive view on China and Far East equities generally really stems from a very simple combination of attractive valuations, still robust outlook on double-digit earnings growth going Mm. forward. And I think also importantly, and this is a real contrast to Eurozone, the ability for Chinese authority policymakers in particular to be to manage a coordinated response between monetary and fiscal policy. We still think they've got room for manoeuvre, which is very different to other regions. Key key point, and we've had that for the last couple of years, that China's got the ability and the willingness to act whereas some central banks don't have that scope. Well, uh, let, let's move on then to uh, Europe. It's been one of our underweight since the start of 2019. Looking at it now, uh, we've seen quite a substantial rally in Q4, pretty much kept up with the rally we've seen in the United States. But it's not exactly cheap, and we do have some concerns, which we'll go into in a few more detail. One of the things we look at quite closely is what multiple you need to pay for the next 12 months of earnings in in a stock market. And on that basis, uh, Europe's sort of middle of the pack is around 14 and a half times uh, next 12 months earnings. To give you perspective to that, Asia is uh, trading around 13.6 times, so quite a marked discount given that growth rate is still intact. But starting off looking at some of the concerns we've got around Europe, Fiscal policy and and the lack of fiscal policy, uh, particularly from Germany, has been a bit of an issue. Yeah, it it feels very much the the, the analogy is of driving a car with one foot on the accelerator, one foot on the brake. So the the ECB has done its uh, best to support the eurozone economy with uh, interest rate cuts and deposit rate now at minus 0.5%, as well as a resumption to QE. But at the same time, the ECB, both under previous President Draghi and current President Lagarde, has said that there needs to be a, a combination. Monetary policy is much more effective when it's combined with fiscal policy, and you need that fiscal combination. But Germany is still very much wedded to its uh, Schwarzenegger, its black zero balance budget rule. It's uh, almost determined to refuse to use some of its record budget surplus. And uh, I think the GDP numbers that we've seen out of Germany very recently, almost the worst of both worlds. It's neither strong enough to uh, assuage fears of growth in the Eurozone nor weak enough to really push German policymakers to do more. And one of our favourite areas has always been discussing what's happening in terms of Italian politics, given the economic situation in terms of debt GDP is quite so precarious. Now, Matthew, you've done some digging into the uh, upcoming Emilia-Romana election. Do you want to go through that? Absolutely. Mr Salvini, leader of the uh, the Lega party, uh, doesn't seem to quite disappear fully off the headlines. and uh, Well, he's, been, he's remained ahead in the polls, yeah. uh, despite the fact he's uh, moved out of government. So Absolutely true. It's always going to happen, I suppose, at, at some point. I think, I think the worry I have is that it's very fragile 
coalition at the moment between PD and Five Star. And as you point out, Edward, Labour are firmly ahead of both of those parties in the polls. And you've got regional elections coming up in uh, Emilia-Romagna at the end of this month on the 26th of January. And this has been very much a, a left stronghold. I think there were tremors, if you will, back in October last year when uh, uh, Umbria fell for the first time in 50 years. It had been held by uh, the left and uh, Lega took that region in uh, regional elections. And some commentators are observing that should uh, Lega win uh, elections later this month in Emilia Rangna, that potentially could cause a real destabilizing impact for the coalition. And if you do revert to a general election, then as you say, but Lega's looking uh, reasonably strong. So just going back to your point there, Matthew, on Italian politics, so one thing we shouldn't forget is that this is Italian politics and they do tend to t- change prime ministers as much as... Not that we're immune from that ourselves. And exactly. And as obviously we've just had our own general election as well. And obviously, again, going back to this certainty and uncertainty issue for markets. So now we've got clarity and certainty in the UK political backdrop for the next five years with the Tory government. I think that's important for markets in that the risk that was around a Corbyn government has been taken away to some some extent and the development of our Brexit plans now for the next year are, are going to be uh, still at the forefront of people's thinking. So, uh, you know, while we're positive on the, the economic backdrop being resolved, I don't think, again, it's been particularly, you know, fully taken away because Brexit's still sitting there in the background. What's your prediction then for the trade negotiation throughout the course of 2020? Well, I think it's going to be it's going to be a tough one. And as you know, you know, as we've learned from experience, some of the, the trade agreements that have been discussed and, and agreed over the years between, for example, Europe and Canada have taken many years to get resolved. There is a risk here obviously that um, again we can't get any clarity or resolution within the next 12 months before we actually leave the European Union and to be honest I think it's still a bit of an open question of, of where we go in terms of our final agreements but I think you know we're in a better place than we were six months ago three months ago at the old Brexit deadline dates in October so for me I think things have moved on in a positive move. There's definitely a, a sort of a worrying parallel, though, I think, between what we can hopefully achieve between uh, UK and EU over the next 11 months against how long it took Canada, for example, to agree their deal with the EU, which took some eight years. Boris Johnson has talked about trying to get a Canada-style agreement, and whilst that would resolve tariffs on goods, it doesn't really resolve on services, financial services. So, for example, Canada doesn't have any automatic passporting rights for financial services in Europe. Clearly, financial services is a much bigger factor I imagine, which will weigh into UK-EU negotiations. And so the idea that we can resolve those in a very short time period, I think, is certainly ambitious. And it's perfectly possible that we would see a situation where we see some form of partial deal in 2020, which actually extends out uh, some of these thornier issues. I think whether, you know, phase one being the in vogue statement at the moment, maybe we get a phase one trade deal in 2020, and a bit of an extension until we discuss, for example, services, or we discuss, uh, you know, some sort of uh, regulatory alignment. And, and how long do you think that, that extension will last? That'll be a couple of years? It could, it could take a huge amount of time. I mean, yeah. I, just looking through um, some of the the EU or potential demands in terms of EU, UK trade, a few things in there like uh, environmental alignment, those types of issues are going to need to be uh, negotiated. This could take plenty of years. And the the more distant uh, that the UK wants to have its relationship with the EU, the longer those negotiations will take. Exactly. So, you know, again, political backdrop is uncertain. It does sit very much on our radar. So we've got politics in the US this year. We've got the Italian issues as well and ours have been slightly more resolved but I think we have to get back to 
our knitting is looking at the fundamentals behind markets and what drives market. And it's not just politics. There's lots more involved there as well. And earnings expectations, I think, is going to be key for us in terms of where we go for yeah. the next year. I think, I think with 2019 was typified by the fact that we saw earnings expansion as central banks become more competitive. We've had this stealth quantitative easing coming out of the Federal Reserve, although everyone promises me it's not quantitative easing. It looks like it to me. Um, We've had that as a backdrop. This is really driven valuations higher, but earnings need to come through. They do need to come through. And I think, helpfully, consensus is in tune with that desire. So 2019, you saw no earnings growth, multiple expansion, Everyone appreciates that the long-term relationship still holds for advancement in earnings and share prices. This year, the consensus is looking for global world earnings to grow some 10% in 2020 against 2019. Part of that is the fact that you have a very easy comparative, that there was no growth last year. Also, you've got a moderation of some of the risks around uh, global trade with US and China, which will be helpful as well. And as I said earlier, that will help at the margins in terms of a, of a recommitment of spending. That 10% seems quite an aggressive number. Do you think it matters that we don't achieve 10%? These is, numbers are normally revised down, aren't they, yeah, as, yeah. as we enter the year? You typically start with a large number and it tends to fade at the edges a little bit over the course of the year. That's a normal progression. I suppose arithmetically, given that we had no growth last year, effectively 10% is achieved also by having sort of 5% per annum for two years. So there's a little bit of catch up and I will also suggest that that easy comp, that no growth that we saw in 2019 will inflate that 2020 earnings growth number. And what what sectors do we think will perform well in 2020? We've been looking at technology for some time, healthcare. What, what are the factors driving those as we enter this year? I think very much the same. I think you've got uh, strong structural supports for both technology in terms of disruption and innovation and also healthcare as well as governments look to try and find ways to make uh, their budgets go a little bit further, be much more efficient and technology can also overlay with healthcare as well. So there is a nice crossover between those two sectors. But as you say, we're looking at global earnings forecasts, healthcare and tech do sit towards the upper end of uh, expectations within the pack. So it feels like those two sectors should be well placed this year. Now, the 2016 election in the United States, that obviously had a big focus on healthcare, specifically around drug pricing. Uh, That's led us to move to a more uh, neutral outlook in healthcare in the very short term. A lot of those key long-term drivers are certainly still there. It could just be a slightly bumpier 2020. Uh, Exactly. I think as you get closer to the election day, depending on how the polls sit, again with the caveat that polls aren't always the best lead indicator in terms of outcomes, but there is rhetoric from the Democrats, obviously, that, you know, is going to potentially break up some of the larger tech companies. There is also the issues they've had around the pricing of healthcare in the past. So bumps in the road, as you say, for the the rest of this year, as we get towards um, the political deadline of November for the election. But I think on a fundamental basis, you know, the demographics, the the changes we've seen in technology that Matthew's alluded to, I think these underlying fundamental drivers are still going to be there, which leads us to believe that these sectors are are well-placed for the next few years as well. And it's interesting you say Democrats as a kind of generic, because, of course, we are, what, only 10 months away from the actual election. We still don't know who is going to be the Democrat candidate. I mean, the effect of that is going to be quite important for markets as well. It is. I mean, at the moment, Joe Biden, who is the, the former vice president under Obama, he is very much in the lead at the moment. And uh, the more lefter candidates, such as uh, Warren, for example, are very much behind. So as long as 
Joe Biden remains that firm candidate, and if he secures the Democrat nomination, then I think markets will take that far better than if you had a much more left of centre candidate uh, fronting that Democrat campaign. So just going back to your comments a moment ago about earnings expectations for the year, Matthew, where do you see the risks to those earnings expectations at you know, a corporate level? Is it, you know, we've got very strong employment levels in the US at the moment. Is there potential for wage pressures to come through and, and maybe inflationary pressures to build? Well, I think that really kind of speaks to the, the Phillips curve, this relationship between unemployment and inflation. And the, the received wisdom is that as you see unemployment drop down to 50-year lows in the US and a very tight labour market, surely it's a question of time until those wage growth pressures start to emerge. They haven't done so yet. And I have my own theories as to why that might be. Technology potentially acts as a great sort of disruptor. Effectively, it reduces the uh, the marginal cost of finding additional labor for companies and for firms. And so that reduces some of the price pressure. But I think inflation is the key risk for corporate earnings and for markets, actually, because over the last year, when you've had that absence of earnings growth, the lack of inflation has really enabled central banks to move to that accommodative stance, to deliver those interest rate cuts, to have that easier monetary policy. So effectively now, when you look at headline policy rates, less inflation, effectively you've got negative real rates in many areas around the world now. And that level of monetary accommodation is really important. If you see inflation picking up, I think that could definitely disturb. From a corporate angle, you know, the two biggest imports in costs are normally labour and energy. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of production. So did you see the oil price again as being a potential? Well, the oil price had a bit of a round trip, didn't it, earlier this year? We, we reminded ourselves that uh, US and Iran is very much a latent geopolitical risk. And uh, that came to the fore again. So we had a bit of a round trip with the oil price going from $65 Brent to 70 back to 65 again. I think with both the US and Iran de-escalating tensions after their sort of uh, military skirmish and the fact that uh, no oil infrastructure was targeted on this occasion. But I think oil is definitely a significant input. And if you were to see a sustained rise in the oil price, short moves, short blips in the oil price won't normally feed through to inflation and and corporate equations but a sustained move i think would be much more of a risk factor for us okay well i will stop the conversation there it's been uh, really interesting and this will be the first of uh, many of our podcasts we're looking to do this around once per month uh, discuss the asset allocation outlook discuss what we're doing in terms of our client portfolios so if you do have any feedback either on the format of this or on the content you'd like to see going forward please do contact us via our website thank you please listen carefully to this important information This podcast is intended for investment professionals only and should not be shared with a non-professional audience. This podcast should not be taken as an invitation to deal in Brooks McDonald products or services. Any views expressed during this recording belong to the individual and are based on market conditions at the time of recording and do not reflect the views of Brooks McDonald. Brooks McDonald is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. For full terms and conditions, please visit our website.